Welcome to That's Podcasting, a movie musical podcast. I'm Cody Pasby. I'm Paul Ponte. This week we continue our exploration into the career, or really the second half of the career of the legendary Fred Astaire, really focusing on his catalog at MGM Studios. We'll get more into the Ginger Rogers-Fred Astaire relationship or partnership on screen in the coming months, in the coming years, who knows? Uh, we will get to it at some point. But for now, focusing on the post-retirement or the second phase of Fred Astaire's career. Last week, we started with Easter Parade. This week, we will be talking about Royal Wedding. Another movie where the name of the movie, you would think, oh, it's all about royalty and this one event. Just like, oh, Easter Parade, it's all about Easter but really, that's kind of a uh, it's kind of a false flag for both movies. It's just sort of a framing device where it's just a backdrop, Cody. Right. It's just it's just a backdrop. The backdrop to our film. This is the first movie in a while, by the way, where it's a modern day movie. Have we even mm. covered one movie that takes place in the time that the movie was made so far? I don't believe so. I think they were all period pieces. Yeah, I think everything has been a period piece. This one is kind of a period piece because I think technically this is the royal wedding by the way of Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip and I what that happens maybe a year earlier or earlier that year yeah uh, I, I this is where my royals knowledge fails me but let me see let me find out Prince Philip wedding so if you're really really pulling teeth here yeah sure it's a period F- piece 47. A okay. couple years before. It's not really not that. Yeah. It's it a is same, a modern. Yeah. This is like saying like, oh, Uncut Gems is a period piece when it's like, it's 2009. Like, don't yeah. don't give me. No, it's 2012. Like, don't give me period piece quite yet. And Fred Astaire comes in. This is how I dance. That's <laughs> how. That's how. That's how. Don't lean on the glass, Fred. Don't lean on the glass. <laughs> but please lean on the walls. Lean on those walls. Oh, man. I cannot wait to talk about that. Yes, if you if you do know this movie, as Paul is doing the camera trick. <laughs> Too bad this isn't a video podcast because I am I'm uh, spinning my webcam. You just justified making it a video podcast by doing the <laughs> Fred Astaire climbing up the walls, dancing on the walls camera trick. Uh, this is the movie where that happens. It might be the most famous scene of Fred Astaire's career. I have, I've seen that scene before, but, you know, going through this podcast, obviously, I'm, I'm going and seeing movies I never really took the time and watched in its in their entirety. Didn't know that this was the movie that was from, like, just off the top of my head. So when it came, I was like, ah, here we are. Here it is. That- Inception, eat your heart out. <laughs> It is incredible, uh, the history of the rotating set, and it all starts with this movie, and it becomes not so much a staple. Like, every time it, it, it comes up with enough frequency that it has, there are a lot of movies that have used it through the years, but also little enough that whenever it comes up again, it still is incredible to watch, and it doesn't feel gimmicky. It still f- looks really impressive, like in every single movie it's ever been used. So this was Fred Astaire's fifth film of his MGM career at this point. It's mostly a success so far. The aforementioned Easter Parade and his reunion with Ginger Rogers in The Barclays of Broadway, his next movie after that, were both big hits for the studio. Uh, For this movie, the film's cast and crew went through many different permutations. So originally, 
let's start from here, and hopefully you can follow with me. East, okay. Easter Parade director Charles Walter is set to direct. Co-star June Allison, a young and rising star at MGM. She kind of is taking the throne from Judy Garland at this point, as this is right at the end of the Judy Garland contract with MGM. She discovers that she's pregnant soon after accepting the role. So MGM says, one last shot, Judy. We're giving you one more shot. So she's brought in to replace her. Obviously, you see she's not even the first p- choice for this kind of role, whereas five years later, it would just been a given that this is her role and everybody else is, is second, third, fourth. She joins the film, and Charles Walter says, no way, not happening again. I'm not working with her. He had apparently a nightmarish time working with her on Summerstock, and he just left. Said, not happening, not doing yeah, that he basically Yeah, he basically like took care of her, right? Yeah, essentially like, had to nurture her. Babysitter. And, yeah, he was the babysitter on the set yeah. of Summerstock, which I believe filming was about a year and a half, which back in those days is a long shoot. So he said, forget it, I'm not doing this again. So he brings in relative newcomer Stanley Donnan, who had done On the Town, and this is only his second movie ever with the studio. He goes on, though, to do some of the most legendary movies in movie musical history, Namely, the most legendary movie musical, Singing in the Rain. Uh, That old ditty. Yep. Uh, So Garland's still in, but this is the movie that ends her career at MGM. Early on in production, she was either late or just didn't show up to set or rehearsals at all. And MGM very quickly fired her. Uh, And that was it. That was the end of her 14-year or 15-year career with MGM. And they bring in Jane Powell, who was another one of those rising stars. She had had uh, big co-star roles at that point early in her career. She's brought on to replace her. Powell actually started at MGM, much like Judy Garland, at the age of 14. And much to her annoyance... She was cast as a teenager in basically every single movie she starred in. I think there's even a quote of her saying, it got so ridiculous at one point. I was 25, I had children, and I'm still a teenage girl in all of the movies I was doing. Uh, I think she even, there's a quote of her saying, those golden age, the golden age of MGM musicals was not so golden. Something like that. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. She just threw the whole idea of this podcast under the bus, yep, Cody. Screw it. I mean, we're kind of uncovering that too. Like, we love these movies, but that's true. We're not sugarcoating. There's a lot boiling and bubbling underneath. A lot of bubbling, bubbling, toiling, troubling underneath all of this. I have to mention this story because it's I, like too good to be true. Bizarre about Jane Powell. Uh, apparently. She was gifted diamond rings by her husband at one point in her life, uh, but had a fear of needles, and she did not have her ears pierced. So, yeah, she decided that she was only going to have her ears pierced if uh, she was under heavy anesthetics. So when she was having her third child, she said, hey, doc, can you pierce my ears while you're delivering my baby? Doctor agreed, first of all. And while you're at it, how about a pedicure? I mean, I mean, this is also the time where doctors are like, you know what? You're feeling a little stressed. Here's a pack of Marlboros to uh, really <laughs> yes. tone, to really settle things down. Less throat burn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, she walked out with her third child in hand and uh, two beautiful diamond earrings in her ears. So there you go. Uh, Peter Lawford also co-stars in this movie. Yes, the uh, forgotten, not forgotten, but the uh, the uh, 
the Pete Best of the Rat Pack, if you will. Oh, this oh. is man. I, if you want to, I don't know who that joke is for. A thirty-year-old making a Pete Best joke about the Rat Pack. That really is some deep levels. Of you are crossing things. so many generations in that one That's line. That's what I'm trying it's... to do. We're, we're trying to make this a multi-generational podcast. So reaching go. out to all of you. Uh, he co-stars with Fred Astaire once again. Of course, he was in Easter Parade. We've already mentioned that Lawford was tied to the Rat Pack, but he was also married into the Kennedy family from 1954 to 1966. I didn't realize this. You can actually see him in the famous photo of JFK's Jr. saluting his father's body at the memorial service for John F. Kennedy. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, he's actually in that photo. There was also a falling out with him in the Rat Pack uh, that... Apparently. Oh, but they all seem so easygoing. Yeah, I know, right? So easygoing. Uh, F- Frank Sinatra basically told Peter Lawford, hey, uh, maybe tell Jack Kennedy to calm things down with all that mafia talking me, huh? And he didn't, really. And so he cut him out of the Rat Pack. And then years later, he tried to reconcile their differences at a performance in Vegas. Peter Lawford was in the first couple rows of a Frank Sinatra performance. He was going to go visit him afterwards. And Frank Sinatra refused to go on stage until he was escorted out of the building. Oh, wow. Yeah. Frank Sinatra, classic good dude. (laughs) Known for being really nice and mild-tempered and understanding. Oh man, I have a feeling. Uh, there's this. There's this. Uh, how many times am I gonna mention pro wrestling in this musical podcast? I don't know. Every but week. there's this whole thing with uh, Hulk Hogan, where you know he was as the most famous. You might say the Frank Sinatra of wrestling, the, the most famous person in the history of the Elvis, or if you will. But he used to do a thing where they would joke about it, where he would stroke his Fu Manchu mustache and he would just say like, mm, "That's not gonna work for me, brother." <laughs> and anytime he wanted to, he wanted to uh, refute anything that was gonna happen. And I just picture the same thing with Frank Sinatra, just him just being like, mm, "It's not gonna work for me, Jack." And then they're just like, "All right, whatever you say, Frank. Whatever I mean, you say." There's so many stories of like guys just be like hey frank how's it going and he literally just gets beat up by all of sinatra's thugs like <laughs> it's just madness like i yeah. would never ever just if i was in that time and i saw frank sinatra i wouldn't say a word to him because you just don't no, know i think i think all you can do is just tip your hat in respect even that might be too much he might be thinking, i, don't know, I oh, think, I think he'd like what that trying to think- say there bub I think you'd like a like a nice little bow a bow of uh you know like oh <laughs> a bow yeah exactly. like like showing your belly you know what I mean you're just like you're like uh, conceding oh hello sorry sir didn't mean to be in your presence <laughs> speaking of classically nice dudes uh, a uh, funny story or should I say an overtly racist story about oh, how lovely. he first came, how Peter Lawford first came into contact with the Kennedy family and his future father-in-law, Joseph Kennedy. Uh, In his early 20s, Peter Lawford worked at a country club. He would often be seen having lunch and hanging out with many of his black co-workers. And club member Joseph Kennedy, his future father-in-law, as mentioned, did not approve of this behavior and requested that he be fired. Hey, everybody, maybe the Kennedys suck. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe Maybe Camelot sucked. Camelot, Camelot, you might say you found it a bit bizarre. 
Uh, funny enough, the music and lyrics for this movie, uh, the music is written by Burton Lane, who goes on to write Broadway hits like On a Clear Day You Could See Forever and Finian's Rainbow, a movie that Fred Astaire would eventually star in. And the lyrics were by Alan J. Lerner, who would have a very successful writing partnership with Frederick Lowe, and they, of course, wrote Camelot together, as well as oh, Brigadoon wow. and My Fair Lady. Look, how, look who brought it all back together. That's right. This guy, what an... Damn, Cody. I'm I would, I'm impressed by that that segue. That's fantastic. Bringing it right back to topic. That's why they pay me the big bucks. Exactly. And by that I mean, you know, happy to get ten downloads. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the story of this movie is actually based loosely on Fred Astaire's own life. His sister Adele Astaire and him were a very popular uh, vaudeville duo in a stage duo uh, throughout the 1910s and 1920s but in the mid-20s Adele broke up their stage act to to marry Lord Charles Cavendish. Uh, they would eventually marry in 1932. By the way, so that means Jane Powell in this movie is playing the sister of Fred Astaire despite yes. being 30 years younger than him. He could be yeah. her father. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a bit obvious. Um, I mean, Fred Astaire, he, he's one of those people that he kind of looked the same age for like 30 years where like yeah. he looked older from the time he was 20. <laughs> so That's like true. so like from so like from between like when he was 20, he looked like he was 40. When he was 30, he looked like he was 40. When he was 50, he looked like he was 40. <laughs> like it's just I was going to say the the one benefit of that and of course of dancing your whole life is he looks fantastic for his age. He's 52 here. And yeah. if you had told me he's 40 here, I would have totally believed you. Uh, yeah. he, he looks great. So, but nonetheless, uh, in reality, Adele Astaire was actually three years older than Fred Astaire. So, okay. Uh, and yeah, as mentioned, uh, this is a movie that's actually taking place and celebrating the real life wedding of Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. There is some footage at the end of the movie. Uh, I was like, oh, that's definitely the footage of the day. But then when they showed the carriage of the couple, you don't actually see them. So part of me is like, could they not use the footage? Because I feel like England does have some weird laws about like using parliament footage and royalty footage. So maybe they're like, no, 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 no. You can't actually show them. But Yeah, like you could use the stock footage, but you can't show the, the royal family. Yeah, you can't actually show them coming out and you can't see the queen and, and uh, all well, of that. Well, isn't it like all appearances above the royal family have to be completely... Uh, That's probably what it is. Like, like approved? Yeah. Yeah, that's probably what it is. I watched The Crown, and and and, and much <laughs> like and you know, they're the queen, and the, the royal family's in cahoots with Sinatra, and they probably said they're not gonna. <laughs> old Peter Lawford's in this. Nah, too much saying, respect for old blue eyes. You saying Prince Philip stroked his Fu Manchu and said that's not gonna work for me, brother? That's exactly <laughs> <what I'm saying>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk about the movie, which begins. Uh, with the song Every Night at Seven, which is the title of the big, I guess it's a Broadway review. It's not like a, it's sort of vaudeville, but uh, it's not vaudeville because now we're past the era of vaudeville. So it's just a big Broadway review where we're introduced to the, wouldn't you know it? What a novel concept, a song and dance stage duo. How original for movie musicals of this era. Every other musical we've talked about 
is yeah. this formula. And I mean, yeah. you kind of get it. Like, this is what they're like. It's easy to turn them out with more music and just keep it going. Like, it's easy to frame stuff around this where we don't have to come up with big original numbers. We can just be like, you're on stage now and you can sing. So I get it. It's fine. Uh, it's the brother and sister act Tom and Ellen Bowen, played by Fred Astaire and Jane Powell, respectively. And uh, they are performing a suitably royal and uh, lovely choreographed number to kick things off. After the show, in Tom's dressing room, his assistant shushes him as the news of the royal wedding is announced on the radio. He then promptly shuts it off when news of a hurricane in Florida is then announced. So uh, There's there's a few good moments like that where yeah. they're just like, ha-ha, we're going about our business. Yeah, it was very funny. It was, it was a very funny this. joke. So it uh, also shows nothing has changed in terms of our priorities as a country. Oh, no, not uh, at all. Nothing's changed. The two go out for a nightcap afterwards where they meet up with their friend Irving, played by Keenan Wynn. By the way, Keenan Wynn, uh, one, you may recognize him from some roles when he was an older fella in Dr. Strangelove. Also, Ooh. he is the son of Edwin. And oh, wow. He actually, Keenan gets into acting before Edwin, and he convinces his dad, hey, you should try it. You'd be really good. And, of course, Edwin has a very successful career doing voice acting and, um, you know, in iconic roles uh, in children's movies. So good on him. Uh, so their friend Irving tells Tom and Ellen that he got them a gig in England during the royal wedding. And they'll be leaving in 10 days, which is perfect for Ellen as her two boy toys run into each other at the bar. That big, tall southern dude with that big old belly laugh. She, Tom, and Irving make their exit as uh, her and the other boy toy get into a brawl uh, at the bar. Yes. As a, a very good, I like this little running gag at the beginning where, yeah, then we go to Men the are boat. literally fighting over her. Yeah, we go to the boat and there's a third guy. Mimbo number three now shows up uh, and suddenly she hears the voice of a tall, dark, and handsome British fellow played by Peter Lawford that catches her attention. Uh, her southern boy toy tries to say goodbye. She rushes him off the boat, and then he gets into another brawl uh, with the man number three uh, as they set a sh- they set a sail or set off on their journey across the Atlantic uh, on their way to a new gig in England. On the boat to England, she runs into that British boy toy who introduces himself as Lord John Brindale. Uh, he soon figures out that he knows Ellen from her show, and they develop an instant kinship thanks to their philandering behavior. Yeah, they're almost like, um, I mean, it's a little less overt because they can't show her making out with, with a bunch of men because that would be too scandalous. Hers is more just like, ah, eh, just hang out with these guys, they're all right, you know what I mean? His is a little more overtly sexualized. But I do appreciate the fact that it's not necessarily equal because of what I just said, but at least it's kind of like th- she's not being judged for this behavior. Yeah, agreed. Whereas normally around this time, uh, it might be a slightly different <laughs> in a, it, it in a film. It is now 1951. The times, they are a change in Paul. But not that much. I mean, it's still the <laughs> not 50s. Not at all. <laughs> it's, it, just, it just finished from the, I mean, the 40s just ended. I mean, it's not, it's not like, you know, it's not... You know, we're not the swing in 60s over here. You know no. what I mean? It's, I mean, what do they say? That the first, like, three years of the next decade are closer are, are closer in style and tone to the previous course. decade or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. So I do appreciate that. It's like that, especially I do appreciate that she's kind of a co-lead. She's not really uh, sidelined too much in this movie. And I like the fact that both of them have, like, a very similar story. Her and uh, Fred Astaire, that is. Uh, that they both have this 
like the same motivations, but despite the fact they're both, you know, separate sexes, they're not treated as having different goals or different uh, revelations. Like it's actually very equal, which yeah. is a nice surprise. I mean, he is the star of the show, but it, yeah, it's really both of their stories are given pretty equal time on screen to develop and. Uh, I think uh, pretty good respect for both actors, which again sounds like a very low bar. But it does. But the fact that they're not like these movies. the fact that they're not like she's not married yet. What? What are you, an old crone? Like, <laughs> why haven't you spit on any babies yet? Like, the, you know what I mean? I mean, like I said, the bar is low, but sometimes that's what you start expecting. You know, yeah. we've seen some of these musicals that we've been watching where the women are just like literally traveling across the country to answer an ad just to get married. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I mean, so it's refreshing when a woman is like, yeah. Oh, I think I want to keep going with my career, and that's kind of what she does. Yeah. And wants to oh, do. all you very handsome men want to marry me? Cool, but like I'm trying to get on this boat, <laughs> and because I have a career I want to deal with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of nice. Uh, so she's talking to Lord John Brindale. Uh, she finds out that he is actually on his way to his family's wedding, the royal wedding, that royal wedding, and so she's immediately. Uh, interested in what this guy's got going on meanwhile she's actually supposed to be practicing with her brother tom uh he's agreed that hey let's we're gonna do a nice little performance on the ship why not let's entertain the guests so he wants to practice their routine in the gym but she doesn't show up so he decides to work with what he's got in the other fantastic number this is like Watching certain episodes of like Seinfeld and The Simpsons that have two incredibly iconic moments, and then you watch it together, and you're like, "Wait, that was in the same episode." Yeah, this is that with uh, Sunday jumps and the dancing on the wall scene. This is maybe his second most iconic uh, number, where he yeah. is dancing with the hat rack. Yeah, I just want to point out, Cody, me and you, we actually have been on a cruise together. We have. Um. Do you recall any place in that where the indoors had a ceiling as high as the as the gym in this boat? Of all the of all the the rooms, by the way, that needed a tall ceiling, I'm gonna guess the gym was not the priority that needed this. This is what I love about this time of making movies. It was just people got it. You're watching a movie. It's not real. Yeah, because there is a cut. Where we zoom all the way out, and you can literally see the set ending. You can see the top of the set and where the background is, where it begins, where you yeah. are literally like you are There's taken like, out of the moment. We like we need to get that crane shot. I have I don't care. We're yeah. getting the crane shot. Like, but but, like, but no 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 doesn't matter. I don't care. People will understand. They're gonna be focused on him. And guess what? They're right. It's, yeah. It looks so. I don't even care that that you can see that he's on a set. I feel like two like my favorite scenes from this era of movie musicals are ones like this, where an actor just gets to have at it with the environment around them. Like there's a there's a scene in Summerstock where Gene Kelly messes around like with taps on a newspaper and like tears it up with his feet. It's really good. Uh, there's from Singing in the Rain, which Stanley Donnan does a year later. Uh, the Moses supposes scene where they're just messing about with the guy and his hair, and it's really fun. And this is in the, very much in the same vein. It's so fun. 
it's incredible. Like I could literally, my heart was literally swelling as I was watching this scene. It just makes me so happy. Fun fact: Fred Astaire apparently tried out thirty different commercially purchased hat racks to dance with before telling producers none of these are working. You need to make a custom one. Well, it probably needed to be like perfectly weighted and like. I was gonna say you can tell there's definitely weight to it at the bottom that doesn't look normal. No, like it, and it has to be like weighted heavily in the center so that he could spin it and it and it continues in the same rotation at the same spot. Like it's right. very specific to what he's doing. So if it, if he if you buy one, even if it is heavy enough to spin that way, the idea that it's probably perfectly balanced in that way is 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 unlikely. Exactly. The uh, props department made a custom hat rack for him that cost $900 to build, which in 2020 dollars is $8,875. Let's put that in perspective. I decided I'm going to go on Amazon. How much is a hat rack going for right now? The most expensive one I could find was $400. This one was nearly $9,000 in 2020 money. Hey, whatever. You got to do it. You got like if you don't have that hat rack, the scene is not nearly what it is. Exactly. Also, do you remember uh, and I and it only dawned on me when I read this. It was like a light it was like a, a part of my brain that was blurry suddenly cleared up. There was a commercial in the 90s with this scene from the vacuum company Dirt Devil. First really? of all, do you remember Dirt Devil Vacuums? Which I yes, don't, how are they even? Are they even still around? Are they out of business? Uh, I'm not sure, but I remember. Did the uh, Dyson Company suck them up? My bow tie is spinning right now. Uh, yeah, there was a Dirt Devil commercial in, in 1997 where they inserted their new vacuum in the scene instead of the hat rack. The only reason it happened was that the widow of Fred Astaire gave it its blessing, but Astaire's daughter, Ava, called it, quote, the antithesis of everything my lovely, gentle father represented. So don't think she was a fan of that. Mm. Um, but anyway, great number. So much fun. I love it. So after his solo practice, Tom runs into Ellen, who introduces her to John. They receive a telegram, but John says, forget about it, as boy, uh, let's just toss multiple pieces of paper into the ocean right off this boat. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong. Nothing wrong that might come back to bite us in about 50, 60 years. No. Who cares? We won't be here to see it. Actually, Jane Powell, I believe, still with us, uh, 96 years old. So. Uh, uh, 91, Cody. 91, let's not, excuse me. Let's not, let's oh, not be 96. rude. I'm sorry. I apologize to Jane Powell. The Jane Powell Estate, ninety-one. You don't look a day over seventy-five, dear. Actually, I think I did. So I picked see a picture of her. She actually looks great for her age. So, way to go, Jane Powell. Yeah, uh, this is uh, my mind is dumb, and I initially thought, wait, they're sending letters to a boat in the middle of the ocean, huh? And I just realized they're definitely using Morse code of some kind, right? <laughs> right, that's what they're doing. A telegraph, maybe? Uh, yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is. Now, like, telegram for, you know, something. Yeah, I'm assuming. Yeah, okay. My stupid mind was like, how do you send letters? <laughs> you, put them in, you, put them in a, you put them in a bottle. You put a little cork on the top, <laughs> and you toss it out. 
my stupid mind was like, damn, there's like little speedboats all going around the ocean dropping off letters back in the day. Wow. Crazy. Cody, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> my, because in my mind still, everything works like a Looney Tunes cartoon. So, <laughs> uh, if you Look, I still think the stork delivers babies. I can tell. <laughs> oh. That night, as promised. Tom and Ellen dis- do perform for the ship guests in the song Open Your Eyes, which starts off as this romantic waltz sung by Ellen uh, as Jane Powell gets a shot to show off those wonderful, rich, strong vocals. Uh, by the way, her voice was so beloved that she actually sang at the inaugural ball of Harry Truman in 1949. She sang in front of four other presidents. She sang in front of the Queen of England herself. And wow. at the 1956 Republican National Convention, she sang the national anthem. So uh, we have gone from beautiful Jane Powell singing the national anthem at the Republican v- Convention to uh, Laura Ingram and uh, Raven <laughs> Rudy Giuliani. So uh, things have definitely gotten better. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the number quickly turns into a comedic routine. I love that the the very subtle change about halfway through, because, admittedly, if you are I, there are there are high quality versions of this movie available, but like if you are gonna watch this and stream it, I think it's on Amazon. It's free to watch, uh, pretty much anywhere because it is in the public domain, which we'll talk about yeah. later on. The the copy I saw was pretty good. It was a, it's on a Tubi. Yeah. T-U-B-I? Yeah. Yeah. So there was a moment where I thought, "Uh uh-oh, the the tracking for the shot is something's off. But I realized, no, they are showing you the movement of the boat with the camera movement. And then, of course, they cut to a big storm hits, and it becomes this comedic routine as they plow through the storm, and the dancers are slipping and sliding around the stage, avoiding objects, falling into people's laps. There's a dr- I, the bass drum rolling across the stage had me in stitches. I thought that was so dumb and funny. Yeah, uh, it was a great. It's a great little set piece. It is. It's a really fun piece, and I feel like it's made all the more impressive when you realize this is only Stanley Donen's second movie ever, and then a year later he's doing Singing in the Rain and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and I feel like you can kind of see the genesis of that creativity in this movie. With this number, the hat rack, and of course the dancing on the ceiling, like he is a different creative mind. Or, I mean, some of these ideas Fred Astaire had for years, but for him to be the guy to be like, let's do it and figure out how to do it, um, yeah, you just get a very early glimpse of uh, he's definitely a special talent. Yeah, there's de- there's definitely an evolution going on of style, and it's it's kind of cool to be able to see it, like especially being able to see it with different. Um, technology as it advances throughout you know his his career as a director so it's kind of cool and then like especially in this you know you get you get the revolving set and different 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 stuff you know that he different tools but i read here that uh we were talking about the we're gonna get the revolving set when we get to it but uh apparently fred astaire had an idea uh, for that like as early as 1945 or something like that or no back in the 20s he said he first had the idea for it can you imagine being like the 20s just just having that idea it's nuts this is his magnum opus that scene yeah it is everything his entire career had been leading up to 
And the fact that he does it so flawlessly at, what, 52 years old <laughs> yeah. is incredible. Uh, also, this scene on the, uh, the ship is actually inspired by real events. Uh, when Fred and his sister Adele were on their way to England, and they actually did a dance where they were slipping across uh, the floor. While I think Adele needs water. a producer credit here. Yeah, she <laughs> is. She's all over the place in this movie. So, yeah, go Adele. Uh, she was a movie star for a little bit. I think they were in a movie together, but it was like a Broadway review, so they didn't actually star together in it. Mm. Uh, so they actually never starred on screen in the same scene together. Basically, as her career ended, his career began. Uh, on at least on screen so they have arrived in england and we get the classic you know like i feel like any time in these this era of movies you arrive in england you get all the shots of the big uh marquee landmarks across london all they needed was just the dun 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 to top it all off uh, yeah. they, they meet up with irving's brother edgar oh look at this also played by keenan Wynn. um also, the case of the first two twins who have different ac- accents completely. Uh, I love, I love that. I, 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 I was like, funny. I was like, okay. At that point, I because of that, I was like, well, obviously that's not his brother. He's playing some weird game <laughs> where he thinks his brother who lives here should have an accent, and it's like, oh no, that is his brother. All right, okay, <laughs> wonderful. I should say, you know what though. I said that you can't be like related and have different accents. I think though, um, Christopher Nolan and Jonathan Nolan, who both were raised together in England, but I think Jonathan Nolan, uh, I saw something like a Westworld behind the scenes, and he has an American accent, whereas Christopher mm. Nolan has a British accent. I so, guess it depends on when if he moved here when he was right. when he was like young enough to that it young will enough to rub yeah. Off. yeah anyway so it's a real thing although. Not sure it goes as extreme as this, where he's literally like typical New York accent, and his brother has very hot, yeah. proper English accent. But it's a very funny bit. Yeah, I do also enjoy the uh, the taxi driver. Oh yes, yes, my lord. Oh, because like lord. yes, governor. <laughs> yes. He calls him governor, and I was like, no. <laughs> I bet you that's his voice too. I I have to look it up. I wouldn't casting. be surprised. I oh. wouldn't be surprised. But it was just funny. It was just like. How English can he be? He says, oh, well, thanks, governor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely, governor. <laughs> He's just like so over the top. I loved it. Uh, uh, Tom steps out with Edgar as Ellen goes off to meet John. As the men step out, Tom has a chance encounter with a woman, Anne Ashman, played by Sarah Churchill. That last name, if you're wondering, oh, she's an English actress with the last name Churchill. Could she be related to Winston Churchill? Which sounds like a ridiculous thought. Well, guess what? She's the third daughter of Winston Churchill. Yes. Wow. I could not believe that when I read that. She was sort of like, uh, if you know your U.S. history, was it the daughter of Teddy Roosevelt who was sort of the, like, on-the-town socialite who was almost shunned from the family? You know who I'm talking about? I know. I don't. I don't remember if that's the one, but I. The she. Yeah, I remember that story. She is very. From everything I was reading about Sarah Churchill, she is very much in the same vein, uh, where even I think later on in life, Winston Churchill sort of disowns her. Uh, she after this movie, she was like her star was on the rise, but she was a heavy partier, a heavy drinker. Oh yeah, she even she went to jail. Arrested, went to jail. 
And, uh, yeah, Winston Churchill just completely disowns her. I think she ends up having a fine career after that. There are some, some, some problems here and there. Uh, but she, yeah, she doesn't do acting at that point. But, you know, her life is, is fine for the most part after that. Oh, Cody, you might. Apparently she was romantically involved with an African-American jazz singer and painter named Lobo Nocho. And uh, there were reports that the two might marry. Um, Cody, and hold on to your hat. Winston Churchill is believed to disapprove of this. <laughs> so, in a matter of about 45 minutes, we have said, maybe the Kennedys are ain't shit, and definitely, Winston Churchill ain't shit. Just ask the people of Bengali and India if what they think about Winston Churchill. Exactly. Um, anyway, anyway, continuing. Mm, excuse me, let me stretch her. Let me just stretch after that. <laughs> so, Sarah Churchill, uh, yeah, daughter of Winston Churchill, crazy. Uh, she she plays Anne Ashman as uh, the two have a chance encounter in the street. Uh, she also happens to be auditioning for the show that Tom is headlining as he creepily follows her the entire time to the sh- theater. It's well, little... they're going the same direction. Ah, that's true. I guess you're right. Eh, good point. Good. I think I think he he kind of gets a kick out of the fact that I think he gets a kick out of the fact that she assumes he's following her. True. True. And so he's like so he's kind of like. Well, if she's if she's so high and mighty to think it anyway, I might as well play it up and just, you know, joke her out about it. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz it's not like, you know, he's not like, "Hey baby." He's just yeah, like, yeah, he's not like doing cat calls or anything. Yeah. He's just walking and then she's just like immediately like, "Who is this?" And he's like, he's just tipping his hat like, "Hello." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, we're just heading the same direction. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, at the audition, he surprises her and uh, decides to go up and dance with her and then asks her out on a date that evening. Meanwhile, yeah. in the English countryside, Ellen spends the afternoon with John, who takes her to his family's estate, where he needs to grab a few things for the wedding. That night back at the hotel, the two both have engagements and uh, decide to lie to each other and say that they're just going to go to bed, but both, of course, sneak out into the evening to their respective dates. They have their, they have their pact. Their pa- their unspoken pact of like, hey, we're just, you know, we're gypsies on the run, baby. Like we're we're just we're performing. We're not here. We're not the marrying type. You know, we wouldn't fall for anyone. We were above that that all that nonsense. So then they both have to kind of lie to each other because they don't want to admit that they actually might care about someone. Right. Exactly. And then of course their cabs cross paths as they see each other out the window and oh look at us, couple of kids in love. Couple of kids in love. One of these kids is 30 years older than the other. <laughs> <laughs> Tom and Anne go out uh, to dinner and a nightcap at a bar that her father owner owns, which, by the way, she's calling her father by her fir- his first name, which is always a, a weird scenario to me. Uh, yeah. But, hey, whatever. Everyone's got their own relationship. Uh, and then uh, her, f- her father uh, regales them with a lovely story of a man who threw his wife out of a window. <laughs> what do we, yeah, he says like ah, I knew a fellow with that last name. Threw his wife out an open window. Yeah, it's uh first impressions. First impressions are uh, crucial. Yeah, and this is crucial. A, that's a hell of a first impression. Also, yes. like the bit of uh, the drunks in the back just constantly saying to the royal wedding, and yes. just, just every time just an excuse to drink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very nice. They take a late night stroll to end the evening, and that's where Tom finds out that Anne is actually engaged to a man who lives in Chicago, and they haven't seen each other 
for two years, uh, then there is a chance to strike. Oh, can I just can I just add something real quick before yeah. we move on? Um, I I really wish there was just a moment where this guy he's he's Irish, Very he's living he's living in he's living in England, and this is twenty something years after the the Irish struggle for independence, and I just I could just I just wanted one. Thing of like one of them being like to the royal wedding and him being like oh, well, well, well. <laughs> so just like <laughs> it would have been a nice touch honestly yeah. oh yeah to the bloody royal wedding <laughs> just like just mad you know I just wanted him mad <laughs> that's how you know this was written by Americans yeah they just couldn't they can't touch on that uh... although unlike many of these musicals this guy actually Irish very true he was, yeah. that was an Irish dude that was not like yeah. That's not Keenan Wynn doing a, a hoity-toity British accent. Yes. So the next day, uh, Irving calls his twin brother, Edgar, to check in on Tom and Ellen in a scene that is really just there for Keenan Wynn to be very silly. This is, uh, this is such a ridiculous scene where I think like, what even ends with the pip-pip. Yeah. Like I said, I felt like this had to be a put-on. I was like, he's surprising them in England. This is a joke. And then that happened. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, this is, this is him playing around. Nope. That's two different people. Or so we think. Speaking of uh, references that I make on this podcast all the time, uh, there is a Scrubs episode where the janitor, uh, he shows up and he has this horribly fake mustache on. Like, it's plastic. Like, because that's how fake it is. And, uh, and, and JD and Turk are there and they go like, what are you doing? He goes, janitor, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm not the janitor. I'm the janitor's brother. My name is Roscoe. And he like puts his hand out, and they just go, "We're not doing this." <laughs> they just walk away, and that's what I pictured with this. I just want them to be like, "We're not doing this." <laughs> Come, on. Come I, on. Yeah, I was convinced for a second that that might be the case, but I'll yeah, I was like, I just want them to be like, Irving. Come on. Come on. Come on. <laughs> we know that's not you. The next day, John stops by Tom and Ellen's room, where he confesses his love to Ellen. As a parade blares by uh, out the window, uh, as they're just yelling and yelling at each other as the parade gets louder and louder. After the parade, Tom sits at the piano so Ellen can practice one of her songs for the show, The Happiest Days of My Life. Another chance for Jane Powell to show off more of a ballad this time as, of course, lyrics sort of indicating that John and Ellen's love is growing deeper and deeper. I really to, like this song. Yeah, it's a really nice song. And it's interesting to think, like, to have Judy Garland in this type of role, it would sound like a completely different song. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think It would think still sound great. It would still sound great both ways. Sound fantastic. It's just a completely different style of singing. Oh, yeah. Completely different vocal tone and timber and all that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She, I think Judy prided herself on not being this sort of operatic uh, sort of, you know, songstress. At practice the next day, Anne tells Tom that she can't meet with him that night because uh, her fiancé is going to be calling her from Chicago. And then back at the hotel, Ellen receives flowers from John, who also has some unfortunate news that he won't be making the opening night performance and the after party. So both are now without a date for their opening night soiree. And so they decide, hey, you know what? Let's go together. Brother mm -hmm. and sister in arms. Very nice. And it's opening night of Every Night at 7. And we kick things off with another comedic number. And I swear to God, this is the actual name of that song. How could oh. you believe me when I said I love you when you know I've been a liar all my life? That's the name of the song. 
This is also the name, I'm sure, of like a Panic at the Disco song. <laughs> you know it is. That's, that's, that's. <laughs> I love that. This is apparently the record holder for the <laughs> longest song title of any song in MGM musical history. Because of course it oh, is. Oh my God. Uh, the two play a couple of inelegant city slickers. This is like a um, more PC version of the couple of swells number from Easter Parade. Yeah. Where we're just like, okay, fine. We'll stop doing the hobo clown thing. But there's still, you know, these sort of street tough. Uh, yeah. It, like I said, inelegant uh, city and folk. S- some people say uh, parodying, uh, doing a parody of Gene Kelly. Saw that that he's doing a parody of the he's doing a Gene Kelly Kelly parody, and I should say like they were very good friends, like they really respected each other a lot. They Gene said Kelly, like the yeah. the stomps and the strides and the straw hat and all it's, that. It's very very Gene Kelly for sure. So, but yeah, it's it's more of a um, hey, we're just having fun. This is not a um, John Lennon writing "How Do You Sleep at Night" to Paul McCartney moment yeah. here. But yeah, I can see that. That's, this this definitely has a, a, the the Gene Kelly vibe to it. After the show, Johnny is backstage as he showed up. After all, uh, Johnny actually decided to uh, ditch his engagement and go to the after party to meet with Ellen. So Ellen and Johnny go out after the show as Ellen sings another ballad declaring her love for him. A song called Too Late Now. A lovely song. Another really lovely song. And she's just got this beautiful voice. Also, this song is this this whole scene is definitely shot in daylight, right? Like that was all I was thinking the whole time. Oh, probably, yeah. You could see it, it uh, and again, I think the quality of the version I was watching had to do with it. It was really, really obvious at one point. I'm like, they literally like put a filter in front of the camera to make it a yeah. little darker. Sometimes you see it even now, like on on TV shows, yeah, and, it, and it's always obvious. Like you can tell if something's not shot. I was also thinking that's a lot of people uh, on the lake rowing boats at night. It's a lot <laughs> of people. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you just say not, not a lot of night rowers. Not a lot of night rowers. Usually there's some shifty business going on if you see a boat out in the middle of a lake at night. You saying people are dealing drugs on the boats? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's, like, that's where it happens. I, I, I don't know if you watched Ozark. That's that's the, uh, the okay. dead. Of, that's the that's the nexus of it. That's the. the I tried watching Ozark. A little too happy. Yeah, <laughs> I feel a little too good about life. Oh man, so much energy. <laughs> I, I I've just been putting off watching the newest season because I'm like, I, we're all we're all doing shelter in place. We're all stuck at home. Do I need something that's just gonna bring me down the whole time? Like yeah. I just. Uh, Tired watching Ozark, wired watching movie musicals in quarantine. Let's feel good, people. Exactly. So meanwhile, Tom heads over to Jamie's bar for a late night drink after the uh, after party and to see what what Anne is up to. Jamie tells Tom that uh, the call from Chicago never came through. Oh, that dirty crook from Chicago working at a department store trying to make a good living. Uh, Jamie tells him that... Tom would be a better man for Ann anyway before Tom heads out for the night. As he heads back to his hotel, he walks by the theater and grabs the picture of Ann in the advertisement in front of the theater and then heads back to his room as he sings and dances with the picture in his arms. And, of course, this is that iconic number that we have been teasing the whole time. You're all the world to me. One of the most iconic dance scenes of Fred Astaire's career, maybe the most incredible dance scene of his career 
and even more incredible that it's still so impressive 60 years later it's the, the the gimmick has not worn off at all it's still a technical marvel so i just wanted to point out once again uh, a couple of things i mentioned earlier specifically the equal the the equality of the the double billing here so this is how what we have in the musical tracks first one them together second one astaire dances third one she sings fourth one them together fifth one he what's it called uh she sings then he dances <laughs> and like it it's very like you get a dance you get a sing you get a dance you get a sing you get a, like they know what they're working with. They're working yeah. with maybe the most iconic dancer ever filmed on screen, and they're working with one of the best singers they've got in Hollywood right now, and they are showing them off. So, yeah, yeah. you're right. They, they both get equal billing for good reason. They're both, like, really given a lot of time to shine and really show off. So one thing I, I really appreciate about Fred Astaire in this is uh, the patience that he has. And what I mean by that is in the in the scene with the hat rack and the scene with the spinning set, he knows how to tell a story through movement. So in the beginning, he's very like, oh, what's going on over here with this hat rack? You know what I mean? Like he's kind of like he kind of eased into almost like it's an accident, like a happy accident. He's, feel, he's ha- feeling it out. Yeah. Yeah. And then the same with him dancing in the room. He starts off very awkwardly going on to the next part. Like, oh, okay. So the whole time your brain is watching it, you, you know what's happening. You know the room is spinning. You know that he's dancing with the hat rack and he meant to do that. But in the beginning you're going, oh, this is very talented. This is very interesting. But as it goes on, it gets progressively more and more intricate to the point where you're like, oh, wait. Like, we're almost in the beginning. You think he could be improvising here. And then it starts going, well, there's no way he is because now he's doing stuff that you you could never imagine doing just off the cuff. So he starts off the scene and he's not doing, he's not transferring very quickly. He's very like, oh, one hand on the wall, kind of swallowing over. Then by the end, he has one foot on one wall, one hand on the other. And you're like, when did the, the room change? That's that's the part where it gets great is when you're like, wait, when? at what part during that move did the room actually change? And I think the the, the patience he has in not going big too early on both these dance numbers is pretty awesome. I think that's that's the the maturity that comes with someone his age doing this. Whereas you might, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen like an America's Got Talent or anything like that. But people when they're when they're dancing and they're doing a dance number, they tend to go big super quickly, and you're kind of like blown out by the end of, by the end of it because you're like, okay, well, it's all flourishes. You got to save something for the end. And I think too, this is kind of a mark of the Stanley Don and sort of like he loves. Uh, it really, his next three movies, it's all about, like, reacting. Uh, I mean, there's the cliche line, acting is reacting. But to do that while also dancing mm-hmm. and reacting to environment and to make something with it. I mean, I point to, like, Seven Brides and Seven Brothers. That's a crazy dance scene or the barn raising scene. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and also in the scene on the ship where mm-hmm. they're both slipping and sliding. That's All of that is choreographed. All, like, when is this? I mean, obviously, certain objects are going to kind of go where they go but when they were going to fall how they were going to fall that's all already choreographed it's really impressive to see it all play out and like it's so seamless and so perfect and yeah by the time he's literally on the ceiling and tapping it's just like good lord just incredible it almost seems like a bet by the way that they're just like 
You know how good Fred Astaire is at dancing? I bet he could dance with a coat rack and you'd be impressed. And somebody would be like, no. And they're like, oh, yeah? <laughs> you want to see? Or like, I bet I could put him in an empty room and, and you'd be just as impressed with him as if he was like dancing with, with a partner. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Watch this. Boom. I, I bet you at this time, too, because now it's Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly are at the same studio at the same time. Mm-hmm. And all of these, all of their most iconic dance numbers kind of come from this era mm-hmm. where they're technically so impressive. Where I've already mentioned the summer stock scene with Gene Kelly, and then I bet Fred Astaire is like, "Okay, I'll do you one better." And then Gene Kelly oh, yeah. is like, "I'll do you one better." There's a whole scene where he taps on roller skates. And yeah. Like, and then, and then I bet Fred Astaire saw that and I'll do you one better, and it's really cool. Like, I think they really brought out the best in one another, just seeing what each each one was working on at the time and and in the you know crossing paths all the time so these guys are doing like tom cruise doing his own stunts where he's just like well this time i'm gonna do it even bigger even better (laughs) and you're gonna be impressed Uh, so how was this scene actually filmed so it was made in a custom made set inside of basically a revolving barrel is what i was reading Uh, and of course they build this square set inside of it and they had a camera mounted uh, a cameraman and a camera mounted on an ironing board that would stay that would basically move with the set mm-hmm. as it rotated so you would get the illusion that he was climbing on the ceilings there's a great video on youtube uh by galen fought i think is his name he did this whole breakdown where it's a side by side of the scene itself and then the actual movements the expanded set where you're seeing exactly what is going on it's it's crazy just how he had to choreograph the scene and then also choreograph when he's going to move and move his shift his body weight and everything and mm. one wrong turn and he's like flat on his face and it's all oh, yeah, it, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't just turn in one direction right <laughs> he had to remember okay now this time it's left this time right. it's right you know what i mean he's uh, you referred to it earlier so fred astaire actually has an idea for the scene as far back as the 1920s and he first mentions it publicly in in MGM studio publication Lion's Roar back in 1945. And, of course, he gets to do it here. Uh, there, of course, are so many other scenes throughout history that are also done on revolving sets. And, but this is, this is what inspires it because it's crazy to think that 2001 A Space Odyssey, Poltergeist, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, The Fly, Interview with the Vampire has one, which I didn't remember that, and Inception. All, of course, have revolving sets, and it's all really thanks to this scene that revolutionizes it. And what's the, uh, the, uh, they, they, Dante's Inferno, where it has the spinning, yeah. 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 There you go. It's, yeah, it's become, uh, like I said, not a staple. It comes back enough times that every time it does, it's still impressive. Oh, any, any director was just like, they saw it and like, I won't do that. Yeah. (laughs) So that's, it's one of those things where like, when one person does it, everyone's kind of like, well, I want to do that in my movie. Why not? I think, it's, I think it's also a testament to how hard this was. I mean, they're doing this 1951 that no other director said, I'm going to do it until, what, nearly 20 years later, 18 years later with yeah. 2001. And it's a little different, obviously, what he's doing and the the scene where he's like running <gasps> on the space station. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's just a testament to how hard that was to pull off. The next day, Edgar drops by, and Tom asks him if he could phone Irving to inquire about Anne's fiancé in Chicago, leading to another Dueling Winds phone call. Uh, later on, before the show, Edgar tells Tom that Anne's fiancé from Chicago actually got married months ago. 
Now is Tom's chance to be with Anne. But before that, we get the song, I Left My Hat in Haiti. And the moment I read the title of this song, I went, oh boy. With a song <laughs> yep. name like that in 1951, it's not a question of if this number will be problematic, but how problematic <laughs> will it be? <laughs> what was people's obsession with, like, homeless people and then, like, the Caribbean? <laughs> like, I don't know why that area so specifically over and over again. I think I think at this time, too, there, this is still the era of like when you go to Cuba and it's still like casinos and all that. And like people like that was their vacation. Uh, but they're like every in New York. Uh, but a lot of these musicals are like we're going to talk about like uh, like Barbados and like. Yeah. Like everyone's. I think it's also because it's just it's it's close enough that you could go there, but. Far enough, like far enough away, where you feel like, oh, it's still a mystery, and uh, mm, okay, yeah. So uh, I will say this: number starts off not that bad. It's, it's okay, uh, despite the fact that we're in Haiti and everyone is white uh, in this number. And then Jane Powell comes out clearly wearing darker makeup. Uh, not good. Not yeah. Good. He he looks a little darker too. But. Yeah, but I don't think that's uh, – she is, like, obvious. His is like, I'm on vacation and I'm getting a tan. Hers is like, yeah, there's there's something wrong happening here. Something <laughs> deeply wrong is happening. I will say, top-notch performance by that monkey. <laughs> great, great choreography right at the end. Yeah. Very nice. Definitely. After the show, Tom checks on Ellen and sees that her and Johnny are a little preoccupied. So he steps out with Anne and tells her that he inquired about her fiancé and, yes, breaks the news that he is indeed married. And to his surprise, she is delighted, saying that the two can finally be together now. But, of course, Tom has cold feet about it and says, "Ah, my work, my career, what am I to do? Anne tries to convince him. All the way till he drops her off at home and he still is a little conflicted. Yeah. We go back to the hotel. Ellen tells Tom that John wants to get married to her. And she also feels conflicted about the thought about breaking up their dance duo. Will Tom, who will Tom dance with? Where will Ellen live? Both seem to know where their heart is leaning towards, but they just cannot accept having to break up their song and dance act. So they wait till the next day and, oh, look at this, the day of the royal wedding to make their decision. And that's where we get the the final song of the movie, What a Lovely Day for a Wedding, a very um, almost evokes like uh, the beginning of Beauty and the Beast, uh, where everyone's like, oh, hello, hello, uh, hello to you, shopkeeper. Ah, do you need eggs? I have six eggs. That's too expensive. Welcome to the royal wedding. Uh, As Edgar strolls down the street, Toward Tom and Ellen's hotel, as all the jolly good chaps sing about the day's big event, and there go off to the wedding parade. And at the wedding parade, we see Anne and Ellen and Tom all looking at the newly married royal couple and starting to realize the mistakes. Tom and Ellen, at least, realizing the mistakes they've made. They both realize that they want to marry Anne and John. Ellen chases down John in his car as part of the royal wedding parade, uh, and they agree that they're going to get married. And then Tom finds Anne in a crowd. And the happy couples get married that afternoon after some 
uh, obviously fantastic work by Edgar to arrange all of this, who said this is going to be basically impossible. You're not going to get married for three weeks. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> at the end of the movie, you're all now married. Yeah. As they got married at a nearby church, and the streets of London are still full from parade patrons as the film ends. Yeah, two, I think a movie that, uh, one, I, I, I don't think we gave it enough credit. There's some really good comedy in this movie. Oh, yeah. Very funny. Uh, some very, very funny bits in this movie that hold up really well. But I think clearly a movie that is most notable for, yeah, really, really doing a great job of highlighting their two main actors. And, of course, just on a technical level, like, in, in a lot of ways, feels like a game changer, this movie. Yeah, definitely. It's the comedy works really well. Uh the surprising uh equality between the two leads and just really the lack of like judgment from other characters to to any of them really is kind of nice. It's yeah. you know, it's I don't know. I I I really appreciated it to be honest. I did too. Yeah, a really fun movie and uh I mean, and we're watching these as the years go on, so I feel like each one we're saying like progressively it's getting better and better in terms of the way we're talking about especially gender representation in these movies and the way yeah. that women are handled in these movies and treated in these movies. Uh, it's just getting a little bit better and better every time. Yeah. As we briefly mentioned, this movie is available to pretty much watch any time. I think if you even go on the Wikipedia article, you could just download the movie right on the Wikipedia page because it is part of the public domain. Now, I love this topic. This might be the driest, most boring topic to some people, but I am always interested in what properties are in the public domain, which, if you don't know, means that it's not under any sort of copyright law. You can adapt it, reproduce it, without any uh, any strings attached, basically. And... Now, there is going to be like a pretty big influx of public domain material, a, a lot of media that's going to hit public domain soon, but there is quite a few things that are not even close to that yet that are part of the public domain, and so I'm going to give you a little quiz here, Paul, and name okay. you, uh, let's see, I think I've got five properties here, movies mostly, you have to tell me, are they or are they not part of the public domain? So the first okay. one is It's a Wonderful Life, the ultimate Christmas movie, the classic Christmas movie. Is it a public domain movie? Yes. Yes. Kind of. Kind oh, of. But damn. no, yes, it is. Okay. The images are public domain. All the images of this movie are public domain, but because it is based off a short story, The Greatest Gift, that is still under copyright, ah. the script is not. So you could play this whole movie. I could post this whole movie on YouTube on mute and not get in trouble, basically. But Interesting. The, the moment I play, uh, sometimes an angel gets its wings, or, you know, an angel gets its wings, uh, then, yeah, I got uh, the old government calling me up. So your first question in this quiz started with a trick question. Yes, I apologize. <laughs> I, I've deceived you. This is, you. We're off to a bad start, aren't you we? sack of wine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, next one. Uh, the famous Superman cartoons from Fleischer Ooh. Animation. I mean, Superman, DC yeah. Comics. Everything's got to be wrapped up. Yes, public domain. It is public domain. Fleischer tunes, uh, of course, 
really one of the juggernauts of early animation with gorgeous the, animation. Some go- those those oh. Superman cartoons are incredible. They, they look so good. They they really look well. amazing. Uh, I the only reason I know this is because I remember buying it. I remember because I would I remember seeing this in like bargain bins and like. Walmarts or grocery stores for like three bucks and it would have like all the Fleischer cartoons of Superman yep. and and it wasn't branded DC Comics or anything it just said all the Fleischer cartoons Superman and I was like that tells me that <laughs> yeah. if you could sell it in stores that cheaply it must be a public domain thing yeah uh, oh no 100% by the way other Fleischer cartoons that are in the public domain would be some of the early Popeye cartoons I believe the rest of them are currently owned by United Artists which is actually owned by the new MGM. So that's all wrapped up. I don't know where Betty Boop is at this point. I don't hmm. know if she's owned by anything. I'd imagine she is. Be surprised if she wasn't. Then again, who's making a Betty Boop movie in 2020? <laughs> so maybe it's not that valuable at this point. Sorry, Betty. How about the Charlie Chaplin classic Modern Times? No. You're three for three. Okay. Maybe? I should have made this harder. Uh, no, but... Uh, in fact, a bunch of Charlie Chaplin's movies just became public domain within the last couple of years, including okay. The Kid and The Gold Rush. So all, pretty much all of the Chaplin movies of the silent era are now public domain. Uh, I want to say same goes for Buster Keaton as well. Mm. I also just saw Rhapsody in Blue is now public domain as of this year. So we could nice. just make Rhapsody in Blue the theme song to our podcast if we wanted. All 15 minutes of it to start off every podcast. <laughs> That sounds like a terrible idea. Sounds excruciating. <laughs> as wonderful as that song is, excruciating. Yes. How about Night of the Living Dead from 1968? Ooh. An iconic film. One, I mean, it d- defines one, the genre. One, yeah, one of the greatest zombie movies ever made. Mm-hmm. No. It is a public domain wow, movie. Okay. And it's only because somebody fucked up. Uh, mm. The film was originally titled Night of the Flesh Eaters, but that name was too similar to another film. So there was a legal battle that ensued, and they had to change the name last minute. When the name was changed, the distributor failed to include the copyright notice on the title card, and a year later it became public domain. And I'm and I'm assuming that man was fired. Absolutely. Oh God, could you imagine if that studio banked on that and they? Oh, jeez, just one of the great mess ups in Hollywood history. And then finally, this might be a little obvious, but uh, just to kind of wrap things up to see where uh, this this whole thing is going, the first Mickey Mouse cartoon, Steamboat Willie. I'm, 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 oh, it seems like oh, it's Disney. It must. Be still it seems obvious, doesn't it? Yeah, it's Disney. But but you're a but you're a trickster. <laughs> I'm gonna say no. It is not part of the public. Okay, domain. but guess what? <sighs> huh? Mark your calendars, folks. January first, 2024. Steamboat Willie will definitely be public domain, and the early Mickey Mouse cartoons will be public domain. Oh, because it's a uh, hundred years, right? Yeah, or it's I don't know exactly. There was. There was a law in the 90s, I think it was Disney, the Gershwin estate, and a few other big uh, big studios and estates 
did a had a big fight about like what could be public domain and what couldn't. By the way, I think Royal Wedding is only public domain because MGM just forgot to do copyright for a couple of movies from 50 and 51. They just didn't think about it. For one of the great studios of all time, I have a feeling that MGM was ran was the shits as far as running things. <laughs> it just an, an amazing creative bench lacking from uh, the top down uh, from yeah from yeah the, uh, it sounds like uh also by 2035 batman superman and most of the looney tunes will all enter the public domain uh, they can't re i think there's some loopholes they could try hmm. and and there's going to be more relitigation i'm sure about like what how long they'll extend it and stuff like that but uh, be ready. Like the, basically, for the rest of our lives, all of the most iconic things in media are going to become part of the public domain, and we could just tear it all apart, whatever <laughs> we want with it, and just uh, just ransack it. Can you imagine, like, just like five different studios put out Superman movies in like the span of a couple of years? Yeah, dude, it could get it might get real ugly. Where you you think we are overloaded with superheroes and properties now? Oh dear lord! Just wait, just wait until the Betty Boop movie from five different studios comes out. <laughs> Shoot boop ba doop. That's gonna wrap things up for this week. Uh, make sure to go to our website, moviemusicalpod dot com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at moviemusicalpod. You can like us on Facebook. We're also at Movie Musical Pod there. Of course, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Cody Pasby. I'm at the Paul Ponte. You can also check out my photography, music, podcasting, all that stuff at paulponte.com and indiehandshake.com, my pro wrestling, independent wrestling podcast. And until next time, hopefully we won't be on the public domain by then. I'm Cody Pasby. I'm Paul Ponte, and that's not going to work for me, brother. And we'll talk to you down the yellow brick road.